We're continuing journey through Genesis tonight. This is part 13, Genesis 15. And it's great to see all of you. We had a great day Sunday. It was just awesome. I just think every Sunday is, man, like good stuff happening. So many people, God's touching so many people, different people coming into the church. And uh, very exciting. Had a huge pastor's breakfast. We had a huge uh, Discover Life graduation. Just a lot of great things. And we've got more stuff coming up. Excited about it all. So we're in Journey Through Genesis, Part 13, Genesis 15, Part 2, because I kind of introduced it last week. And I want to say a prayer, and then we're going to jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see the truth that's tucked away in these scriptures right now. Give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. All right, so Genesis 15. I introduced this last week. We actually went through some of these verses last week, but we're going to hit some of these again because there's just some richness that we need to milk to, to catch this, to get it, and to move on into the following chapters. This is a pivotal watershed moment in all of the Bible, but especially in the life of this character that we're focused on right now, Abram, or as he became known, Abraham. So, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. We'll stop there. Now, there's so much packed in to this first verse. This is the first time the phrase, the word of the Lord is mentioned in the Bible. The word of the Lord. And it's in a chapter where God cuts covenant. And that's literally the terminology. It's not makes a covenant, signs an agreement. It's cuts covenant. It's in a chapter where God cuts covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. The word of the Lord has to do with the word of the covenant. Abram's descendants, the descendants of Abraham, would become known as people of the book. People of the book. People who were all about the word, the wonder-working word, the sure foundation of the word. Our God, as he reveals himself, is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he is the God of Abraham. And he self-identifies through the covenant. This is also the first time where we have I am statements. I am statements. He says, I am your shield an exceedingly great reward. Now, I want to look at that. God speaks two things to Abram, and they both apply directly to where he was and what he was facing, his current situation. The, the very first line says, after these things, in, in verse 1, after these things. What things? Three things. He had just defeated, Abram that is, he had just defeated five kings. He had just tithed to Melchizedek, a tenth 
of all that he had, and he had just refused to take a check from the king of Sodom, okay? So these things apparently were causing some anxiety with Abram. He's having some second thoughts. I mean, the Lord says, don't be afraid after these things. So apparently he was dealing with some fears. Don't be afraid. God was addressing Abram's specific fears. He had to be thinking to himself, those five kings may be coming back after me for retribution. I mean, I defeated them once, but maybe they're going to realign, regroup, and come after me. He could have been thinking, should I really have tithed on the gross of everything I own? Was that really a smart move? And then maybe he was rethinking and having some fears. Maybe I should have taken that check from the king of Sodom. I mean, I earned it. I got his stuff back. Maybe I should have taken that money from that king. But the Lord was saying to Abraham, Hey, bud, don't you worry, son. I've got you covered. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. That I am statement, I am, and all the subsequent I am statements are statements that basically say, God is saying to people, via covenant, He's saying, whatever you need me to be, that's who I will be. You need a shield, you need reward, I am your shield, I am your reward. We're going to see this from here on throughout the Bible. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord, your provider. He's a God who's more than enough. He becomes whatever you need. And I'm going to tell you, that's a lesser covenant. This is a greater covenant that we're in. I'm telling you, our God will be whatever you need him to be. Now, listen, it's not magic. It's not like, Lord, I want to win the Powerball. I need you to be my winning ticket, right? It's not like that. But it's walking in faith, walking in obedience, walking aligned to his plans and purposes. I'm telling you, God will move heaven and earth to get his will done in your life. God will be on your side. God will fight for you. God will be whatever you need him to be. Amen. These I am statements, whatever you need to be. You need a shield, I'm your shield. You're worried about all those tithes you gave? Don't worry. You position yourself for favor. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing you can't contain. You're worried that maybe you should have taken that money from that king. You were right not to lean on the arm of the flesh. I will be your reward. You have nothing to fear. In other words, he was what Abraham needed him to be at the time. Now, it goes a little deeper. I am your shield. If you look in different study versions, different languages, you look at the NIV study Bible, a little mention this as well. I am your shield. That can mean protection, protector. It can also mean king or sovereign. Shield can be interchangeable with king. In other words, we use the terminology now like when referring to royalty, we'll say the crown said this. The crown is the king. Well, the shield is the king as well in this language. Abraham had just defeated five kings. 
Abram's God was a superior king. But not only that, Abram had also just tithed to Melchizedek, who was called the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. Abram's God is the king of kings. He's higher than those five kings. He's higher than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest king through whom God was honored by the tithing of Abraham. Are you with me? He gave tithes to Melchizedek, but this was honoring to God. Melchizedek was a king, but he was also a priest. Jesus, as I mentioned two weeks ago on Wednesday night, is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we dealt with that in some detail. He's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of not Salem, but the new Jerusalem. He is the Shar Shalom. He is the prince of peace, the king of peace. Melchizedek typified Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 indicates, and this is important. I I hope I can convey this. Hebrews 7 indicates that Jesus is a priest king through whom God is honored by our devotion, by our even tithes. I want to challenge you, pastor's challenge, I've already mentioned it, but when you give your tithe, and and it's so much different today, I mean, we write checks if, if you're old school. We give cash if we're Dave Ramsey, right? And we got envelopes. Or we're punching buttons on our device, a phone, the Internet, We're giving online. But I want to challenge you today. When you tie the tithe and give the offering, look at it like this. See it as not you're giving to LifePoint Church, or God forbid you're giving to Donovan and Valerie or the staff of this church. See yourself as putting that tithe into the hands of the mediator between God and man. See yourself as honoring God and giving to that priest, that second Adam, that last Adam, that go-between, that intercessor, that high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. See it as going to Jesus and watch Him turn and open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you can't contain. Amen? Be faithful in that and watch what Jesus does. Amen? He says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. One last thing. My oldest son, Caleb, he is uh, he's a student pastor in Florida. He's a preacher. And he is also back in, in seminary, which is cool. And, and I was talking to him today, and he pointed something out to me. Uh, to the Hebrew, especially in these early days, there was... Not this idea so much, especially in the early days, of heaven as a reward and hell as a punishment. You you didn't see that in these early days of Judaism. Uh, But in Exodus 20, I preached about this just a few weeks ago. uh, Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, verse 4. Sorry, Ron, I didn't give this to you, but uh, Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here's the, here's the deal. Love the Lord, keep His commandments, and the Lord says, here's the reward. I will be with the next generation. I will be with your babies. I will be present in your children's lives. If you'll honor me and put me first, the reward is this. I will be with your children. Now think about the Lord talking to Abram. What's it been about from the beginning? You and Sarah are going to have a son. So what's he saying? He's saying, I am going to be, you will have a son, and I will be with him. I am a God who will reward you by being present with your babies, with your offspring. So this is very powerful. I am your reward. I will be in the next generation. I will be with your children. You're going to have a son. You and Sarah will have a child. God was saying, don't be afraid, Abraham. There will be a next generation. You will have descendants, and I will be with them. Now, this was obvious, I think, already to Abraham, this concept of the reward being that the Lord is present in the children and in the children's children. Because, check this out, look at verses 2 and 3. We're only to verse 2, all right? We're making some progress, but we are at verse 2. Check it out. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? I mean, who are you going to be present with? I mean, I hear you, but is this heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus, is he the one that you're going to be with? Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Now, I I love this because Abram is not taking everything God says at face value. He's arguing with him. Where's my kid, God? Now, according to documents from this era, found around, of all places, Kirkuk, Iraq. We know that this suggestion of a servant being named as an heir to a childless man of means was common back in this day. So he's like, I I don't have a kid. Is it Eleazar? Is he going to be the one that you're with? But God straightens it out. Verse 4, check this out. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So God is reassuring Abram, You will have a kid naturally. It will have your DNA. I will be with him. I will bless him and his children. Now, apparently this conversation, Miss Cynthia, was taking place in a tent because it said he took him outside. It took him on a field trip. Come here. It's, it's dark. Come out here. Come on these fields out here. Come in these, these hills out here. There's, there's no street lights, you know. There, there's no city lights. It's, it's pure 
you know, nighttime, and apparently the sky was clear. He said, come here, I want to take you on a field trip. Look up. Look at those stars. Look to the sky. Count those stars. You'll have this many descendants. Now listen, there's about 8,000 or so stars visible to the naked eye. And, And he doesn't have a telescope. There's no Hubble. I mean, he's just looking up at the sky. And you can see about 8,000 stars. I mean, that's, that's about tops. That number would have been fulfilled in Egypt. We know their numbers. There were 70 in Egypt. By the time Egypt rolled around, there were 70. We'll mention this in a few minutes. That number would grow to 170, and then 1,700, and then a 7,900. And then 8,000. And it would continue to grow. 80,000, 180,000, a million 800,000 and beyond. But before any of it manifested, before there was one, before the first son was ever born, look at verse 6. And Abram believed in the Lord. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. God, that's just awesome. He believed. No kid yet. He's looking at the stars. So shall your descendants be. All right. I believe. The word in the Hebrew for believe is aman. And it means to believe, to support carries the idea of throwing yourself, your weight, into the arms of the Lord. It's been said that to believe in the Hebrew means an unqualified committal of oneself. My dad was a salesman. Y'all have heard me tell these stories. My dad's a phenomenal salesman. I know this is probably politically correct now. I mean, I'm a man of a certain age. I get confused, but my dad could sell ice to an Eskimo, okay? I'm just telling you that right now. My dad is a sales machine. My dad, still to this day, he's a real estate broker. He ought to retire. He will never retire. But he has calluses on his knuckles because my dad is a door-knocking machine. My dad sold cookware, cutlery, and vacuum cleaners. But then he became a real estate broker many years ago. But for 20-something years, my dad was a Kirby vacuum cleaner distributor. Now, that's kind of fallen out of vogue, and door knocking is like not what it used to be. It's kind of creepy now and, and, and that kind of thing. Although, last year... In New Orleans, there was a settlement because of a Kirby vacuum cleaner office suing Metairie. I think it was Metairie because of harassment by the police, even though they had a permit to knock doors. They just settled a a lawsuit for $600,000 because the police harassed them about knocking doors if they had bought a permit to be able to do. I digress, though, okay. I'm like, sick them, Kirby. There you go. 
but don't come knocking on my door, my door you know, like, yeah. Well, anyhow, my dad had calluses on his fingers, and he, and he ran a Kirby office for years. Well, a Kirby office, a sales office, man, they're constantly recruiting people coming in. They're going to start selling vacuum cleaners. Anybody ever sold vacuum cleaners before? I know. I, I didn't want to call you out. But so we've had some vacuum cleaner sales folks in, in, in LifePoint before. But my dad ran a, a vacuum cleaner office, all right? And in those days, uh, at, at, there was no, no non-smoking places, businesses. People smoke like chimneys all over the place all the time. And there's a lot of stress in a vacuum cleaner office among salesmen. And I'm just going to tell you something. They were smoking like chimneys. My dad had this big old office, and they were just smoking, smelling like everybody's stressed out and freaking out and trying to knock doors and make their quota and do what they needed to do. And, and so I remember I grew up around that as a kid, around all these salesmen, these transient salesmen that would come and go. And there was a guy, and I, I think his name was Wayne. I'm sorry, Mr. Wayne, but I think his name was Wayne. And I was a little bitty fella, and my dad had this, this ledge in the office, and I was sitting on that ledge, and this, this guy, Wayne, stood me up on the ledge. I was a little tight, and he said, hey, Donovan, jump to me, jump to me. I'm like, oh, no. He's like, jump. I remember this. And I jumped, and when I jumped, he was supposed to catch me. He moved, and I collapsed on the floor, you know. My dad didn't, these weren't the brightest bulbs, right? And, and so he says to me, he says, never trust anybody, Donovan. I'm like, you know, thanks for teaching me a grown-up lesson, you big dork, you know, like, I was so mad. And my dad found out, was mad, like, it was just, it, it, it was so jaded. I'm a child, you know, don't give me adult life lessons. But he's like, never trust anybody. <laughs> Stormed off, you know. I'm like, what in the world, you know. But that's the idea. Abram was on a ledge. And God said, trust me, Abram. Do you trust me? If you trust me, jump. If you trust me, let go. I promise you I will catch you. Wayne taught me. People will let you down. Sorry, Mr. Wayne. Wayne taught me people will let you down. But God has taught me he'll never let me down, right? He'll never fail me. He's never failed me yet. And Abram took that plunge, took that jump. That's the idea. He threw himself on the Lord, and God made a note of it and counted it as righteousness. It was the right. Thing for Abram to do. Here's the point. If you want to do something that counts, if you want to do the right thing, let me encourage you. Go all in, man. I mean, push all your chips in. Jump off the ledge. Uh, this is not right to say in the Jewish context, but go whole hog, right? Go all the way. The, the Bible says casting all your cares upon him. Because he cares for you. Go all in. Living for God easy is hard. Living for God hard is easy. Go all the way in, man. Have you ever tried to walk that precarious fence? Like, I'm going to be in the world, and I'm, I'm going 
I'm going to go to church and serve the Lord. And you're trying to do it. It never works. It always ends in disaster. And you wake up and you're like, how did I get to this point? Well, I was half in. I was half out. But when you go all the way in, man, you just position yourself for favor. And not only that, you position yourself for additional revelation. God's response to Abram believing was to reveal more to Abram than ever before. Not only about himself, about God, but about Abram. Where Abram would fit into God's plans and purposes. I'm going to tell you something. This is important. There are some things you'll only get when you sell out. There are some things that you'll understand about God only when you go all in. God's not going to reveal more to you until you commit to what He's already revealed to you. Does that make sense? You've got to take what He's already revealed to you and run with it. The reason God told Noah, and we looked at this in Genesis, build a boat. Why Noah? Because Noah built altars. You studied out, I've preached about it, I've talked about it, I've taught about it. We went through it in Genesis. In my opinion, from my studies, Noah was the last man on the face of the earth building altars and calling on the name of the Lord. And God said, who will I get to build a boat? Methuselah, oh, he stopped building altars. Lamech, oh, he stopped building altars 100 years ago. But Noah, he's been building them for 500 years. He's still building altars. I'm going to tell him about the boat. He chose Noah because Noah had been faithful. You be faithful over a few things. God will make you ruler over many. You just walk in the steps he's already shown you, and he'll show you more. It's little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept. You just walk, and as you walk, He opens the path. He opens your understanding. He'll show you things as you're faithful to what He's already shown you. Abram was committed to the idea that he was going to have a next generation, descendants, to whom the Lord would reveal Himself. But now, check this out, verse 7. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? Oh, it's exciting. Yes, that's Mr. Williams. This is exciting. Check this out. Verse 7. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. So now we're getting more information. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and to give you this land to inherit it. Another I am statement. This is interesting. Abram gets away from asking about an heir, and now he starts asking Phyllis about the real estate. Okay, we've settled the fact I'm going to have a kid. Hallelujah. Tell me about the land. Literally, that's what he says. Look at this, verse, verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit Verses 9 and 10. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. That doesn't sound <laughs> like. Bring me a three-year-old heifer. Not, not two-and-a-half-year-old heifer, Abram. 
Not a five-year-old heifer. Not an old 10-year-old heifer. Bring me a three-year-old heifer. A three-year-old female goat. Make sure it's a nanny goat, not a billy goat. You know, my cousin Randy, he used to have a nanny goat named Billy. And we used to feed Billy cans. Like, look at him. He's eating a can. Give him another can. We'd give him cans. He literally would eat cans. With shove This is terrible. I'm so sorry. Lord, forgive me for this. It was Randy that did it. Randy would shove him up against electric fences, you know, like, boom. Jump away, you know. Feed him a can. Oh, I need to stop talking right there. Uh, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all those to him, cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now check it out. We may have shoved old Billy into the electric fence, but we never cut Billy in half. Guzik says something funny. David Guzik says, this seems more like a shopping list for a witch doctor. <laughs> funny, man. Go, go get these animals. But really, this was primal language derived from the Garden of Eden. I pointed this out. Phil Rosenbaum in his book, How to Enjoy the Boring Parts of the Bible, introduced me to this idea that whatever Adam knew, Abraham could have known with only three intermediaries. And so he had this distinct understanding of first things. And we understand the language of Genesis 15, 9, and 10 from the Garden of Eden. Because, if you'll remember, after the fall, immediately Adam and Eve knew they were naked and they got fig leaves and they sewed them together. And the Lord showed up and said, hey, where are you? What's going on? Oh, we hid ourselves because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Well, you know, and so you get the whole confession coming out. And the Lord says those fig leaves are not going to work, in essence. And he takes an animal. Or he takes animals and he kills them. This is death. They've never seen anything like this. This is the Garden of Eden. You know, this is like paradise. And, and the Lord slaughters. I, like, I don't want to get graphic, but like, have you ever been around a slaughterhouse? People, people say that they love meat. The price, I, forgive me, people listening to the podcast, I'm so sorry. But it is a brutal process. We're so far removed from it now. We go to the store and buy some meat. But that meat's all packaged somewhere. It's all, it all comes from somewhere. And it's a brutal process. It is a brutal. And, and Adam and Eve had never been to a slaughterhouse. And the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the giver of life, slaughters animals, skins them. If you've ever been deer hunting, if you've ever killed a deer, if you've ever skinned a deer, that's just the process. It's a brutal process. He skins the animals, and he puts those skins on Adam and Eve. 
my opinion, he didn't tan the hide. They were dripping with blood. He put those bloody skins on Adam and Eve and said, you don't understand how far you've fallen. You don't understand the brutality of the solution to this problem. I will hang on a cross. This will happen to me. You don't understand, but I do. I'm going to try to get it through your thick skull how bad this situation is. And he brutally slaughters animals, puts the skins on Adam and Eve, and then swears things to them. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. It's this brutal picture. It's this brutal uh, show and tell. It's this reality that dawns on them as they're in those skins. And that becomes the language of making deals. We have contracts nowadays. You go print you off a contract. Trey's going to buy a house. Phyllis is selling it to him. She gets an offer drawn up. Trey signs it. She takes it to the, the Jared's selling it. And Jared's like, I'm going to sell it to Trey. Phyllis is the real estate agent involved. The realtor, not the realtor, but the realtor. And, and she, she's that agent that's making that deal. And, and so Jared signs, I'll sell it to you for this amount. And Trey says, I'll buy it for this amount. And that offer becomes a contract. And there's earnest money that's put down. And if somebody backs out, the terms and conditions are not met. There's liability there. And, and, and if, the term, if, if the contract falls out, poor Miss Phyllis, she doesn't even get paid. And, and it's, just, it's just the way it works. But here's the deal. Those contracts, those contracts are strong. They have legal uh, ramifications. But they're not as strong. Is a covenant because a covenant has sworn oaths with it. Covenant's not a contract. A covenant is beyond that. That's why in Louisiana you have covenant marriage. Talked to somebody today. They said, "Well, they were getting a covenant. They were had a covenant marriage and they were getting divorced." And oh, you know, it's like a process. <laughs> it's a process. It is because a covenant is stronger than a contract. And in Abram's day. That idea of what God did in the Garden of Eden was carried into human relationships. Like, you and I are going to make this deal. Let's make it beyond a contract. Let's make it a covenant. Let's swear by a higher power. That's what a sworn oath is. I swear by a higher power that if I fail to come through on this covenant, my end of it, there's liabilities that can be detrimental. Hence, the cutting of animals the way God killed an animal, they would kill animals and open them up. And the rite and the ritual was they would walk in a figure eight through these open, cut open and animals and dead birds. And they were saying, in effect, if I fail to perform my end of the covenant, then let me become like one of these. Technically, in covenants, you could hunt them down generationally. I mean, there were families that broke covenants and they would hunt them down generationally. They were saying, let it be upon me and my children. You remember when Jesus, Jesus was, they were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And, 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 and Pontius Pilate was like, I find no fault in him. They said, let his blood be on us and our children. It was this idea of taking it down generationally. And so Abram understood God was about to swear a covenant oath 
to Abram about what he was going to do in his life. So he said, Abram, you take these animals, cut them open, lay them out. And the idea was God would come and walk among the pieces. But God took his time. How many of y'all know God can take his time sometimes? He can just take his time. I, 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 uh, I had a friend that would call him. Uh, I heard that. I had a friend that, you know, you have these different covenant names for God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sidkenu, and he called one of those, he had. He came up with a name called Jehovah Nicotine, right? It's Jehovah Nicotine. Comes through in the nick of time. And man, I found that to be true. You know, you're waiting and you're waiting and you're, and then you're like, it's too late, it's too late. And then God comes through and you're like, it was perfect timing. You know, it wasn't my time, it was on his timing. That old Dottie People song said he might not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time because he's an on-time God. Yes, he is. And so so uh, God takes his time. He says, take these animals, cut them open, and I'm going to swear some things to you. I'm going to come down, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a covenant with you. I'm speaking this language. Are you with me? Like that garden kind of language had translated now into human relationships and people cut covenants with each other. And the Lord says, Abram, go get me some animals. Cut them open. So he cuts them open. But before God comes down and moves, vultures come in and start eating, coming after his, his sacrifices. And so the Lord uh, it doesn't say, oh, the vultures are coming. I better get down there quickly. He still holds off. Wonder what old Abram will do. And what does Abram do? He starts chewing off the vultures. One of my favorite things to do, I'm just sorry for even saying this. But you know those stupid birds, you know, they're those those vultures and whatnot, they're out there in the with roadkill. And and I'm 51 years old. And especially if nobody's around, I'm out here on 30 or I'm I'm one of these back roads back here. There's, a, there's some of those birds, on, and, and they're eating the roadkill. You know what I do with my little Miata? I'm like, honk, honk, and I'm like scooting over trying to hit them. And, and you know what they do? They're, they're like, they look at you, and then they're like, flop, flop, flop. Get just out of the way just in time. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you do the same thing. Those stupid bar- birds, they just, they, 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 it's like they know. They just wait, flop, flop, flop. Oh, oh. And so so the vultures came down, verse 11, and Abram drove them away. He's like, you get away from this because God is about to speak to me. God's swearing some things to me. And, and, And he's not here yet, but he's coming. I just feel like I need to say that. Some of you waiting on some things from God. You just hold on. Don't let the vultures take your sacrifice. Don't quit following God. Don't give up on him. He hadn't shown up. I guess he ain't coming. You just stand in faith because when it's time, he will be there, and it'll be just the right time. Amen? Awesome. So Abram drives away the vultures, and this was an act of faith. Abram knew God had to walk between those pieces. And in a sense, sign on to this covenant agreement. The devil will attack you. He'll attack your sacrifice, especially if you start doing some things sacrificially for the Lord. 
especially if you start obeying the commands of the Lord, the devil will come against you and say, it ain't working. I mean, he'll take, I've been on tithing, I might as well stick there. He'll take your tithing and say, it ain't working, it's not going to happen. What an idiot you've been, just like Abram possibly thought with Melchizedek. But I'm telling you, the devil is a liar, and that the Bible says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. The Bible also says that we will reap if we faint not. So you just keep walking. Verses 12 through 16. Now when the sun was going down, getting dark, time was running out, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. It's like he went into a trance or into a coma. Then God said to Abram, listen to this, this is amazing to me. No, certainly that your descendants, again, reminding him, you're going to have descendants, and they will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, the inhabitants of that land that's not theirs. And they will afflict them 400 years, the people of that land that is not your descendants. It will afflict them for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I just preached about this Sunday. I'm sure it's like all, it's on the forefront of your mind. I have no doubt. But God is telling him, he foresees. Listen to this from Sunday. He foresaw Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, his boys, the name change, Joseph, the jealousy and betrayal, Joseph in Egypt after Potiphar had had him in prison, Joseph in the palace of Pharaoh. Joseph rescuing Jacob and his family of 70 souls. And then they're there 400 years. It was all roses for a while, maybe up to 300 of those years. Somewhere in there, it turns into thorns. And there is slavery. But there are millions born. And then we have the story, this foresees it, of Moses, the burning bush, the Passover, the Exodus, coming out with great possessions. Now check this out, verses 15 and 16, because we're going to finish this up. We're almost done. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, Abram. You'll be buried at a good old age. That's like me, praise the Lord, not like Tom Petty. I want to go at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, listen to this, to this land. They'll return to to where you are right now, to Canaan's happy land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, who are the Amorites? The Amorites were the leaders or the leading tribe of the Canaanites, the land of Canaan. 
And they were used here to represent all of Canaan. In other words, God was saying, I'm giving you this land, but there is a maturing process that I am going to let take place. There's a fermentation. There is a completeness that is not here yet. And I am going to let the Amorites' iniquity fill up before I bring your descendants back into this land. In other words, I'm not going to invade this land until it's the right time. Timing is amazing in the Bible. I am blown away. I mean, time is no problem with God. He's not a linear God. He's he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. And so he's, uh, these are deep thoughts. But it would cost the children of Israel centuries and hardships. Centuries as in 400 years. Hardships as in Israel being beaten in Egypt and enslaved in Egypt. But what am I telling you is, what I'm telling you is this, that when Joshua led the children of Israel into Canaan, brothers and sisters, talk about a slaughterhouse. There was a lot of death and destruction and mayhem, that so much so that the Bible's criticized and the Israelites are criticized. I mean, we talk about Islam and and jihad, but when God brought the children of Israel into Canaan, he said, kill every man, woman, boy, and child. I mean, take this land and don't let anybody stand. How could he say that? Because, and I'm closing, stand with me right now. This is interesting. How could he say that? Because for all those centuries, the iniquity had been filling up. This was a land that consumed its inhabitants. This was a land of child sacrifice. This was a land of incredible wickedness. And it was becoming more and more and more and more wicked. uh, wicked. And only after the iniquity was complete would God allow Moses to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and eventually allow Joshua to lead them into the land of Canaan. It's like almost this was a space of grace. Remember Methuselah's name means after this judgment? And so Methuselah lives the longest of anybody in the Bible, and after Methuselah came the flood, and all those people died. Well, this was an opportunity, but it got more and more and more and more wicked. And so when the Lord sent Joshua in, it was a judgment of those people that were killing their little babies. And the stories of that, you don't even want to hear. It was so wicked what the devil had convinced these people to do with their children, with each other. It was a brutal land. And the Lord saw all of this in advance. Look at verses 17 through 21. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. They behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. God came down as a smoking oven and a burning torch. Our God's a consuming fire. On On the same day, the Lord made or cut is the wording in the Hebrew, 
a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, you asked me about the land, to your descendants, Abram, I've given this land. And he gives the dimensions from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This land, this territory, years and years later, would be fully occupied under the reign of Solomon. I'm just telling you, when God makes you a promise, His word is true. The word of the Lord appeared to Abram and said, when God has made you a promise, you can count on it. There may look like some detours. There may look like some roadblocks. There may look like somebody sabotaged the process. But I'm going to tell you, my God knows how to get it done in the earth. You just stay in faith. You walk in faith. And God will get everything that he's promised to you. And Abram was learning this valuable lesson. And he's the father of the faithful. I want to be like him, don't you? Hey, he made plenty of mistakes. We're going to see it. As grand as this sounds right now, in the very next chapter is the disaster of Ishmael. But God saw it coming already. We already know it. The Ishmaelites bought Joseph. God saw it coming. God's seen your failures already, church. You hear what I'm saying? God's already seen your mistakes and your missteps. He's got it all covered. You just keep walking in faith. Just never quit walking. Amen? Just aren't you glad that you haven't stopped at this point? If he brought you this far, he'll bring you the rest of the way. He brought me this far. He's going to take me to the other side. Hey, I'm going up in the rapture. You hear what I'm saying? The trumpet's going to sound, and I'm not turning back. I don't come from that kind of heritage. I come from people like Abraham. I'll be faithful. I'll build those altars, and and I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm looking to the Lamb, and when that trumpet sounds, baby, I'm going to fly away. You hear what I'm saying? I'm going to fly away. How about you? Can you give them some praise right now? We love you, Jesus.